Good day, everyone. My name is Rick Banks. I am the co-host, along with Larry Bernstein, of What Happens Next. This weekly program offers listeners an in-depth analysis of the most pressing issues of the day. Today's program, we're excited to say, covers the national election. This conference call is live and unedited. Part of what makes it unique is that our experts are given only six minutes to present. The presentations are followed by a lively question and answer period during which we pose questions to the experts and they also pose questions and challenges to each other. The result is an unusually informative, provocative, and entertaining discussion. What happens next is, is designed to be politically neutral. The idea is for listeners to draw their own information or their own conclusions based on the best available information. We strive to bring together speakers who, while experts, are likely to disagree. We think this commitment to engagement across divides of partisan or ideological difference is especially crucial when, like today, the show focuses on issues directly related to politics. We end each program with a one-minute note of optimism from each speaker, something that's dearly needed in this time. Now I'm pleased to turn it over to Larry, who will introduce the speakers and offer the results of a recent poll of what happens next listeners. Larry, over to you. Thanks, Rick. My name is Larry Bernstein, and we are 22 days away from the national presidential election. Our first speaker today is Michael Holt, who is a professor of history at the University of Virginia. Michael has written on the contested presidential election of 1876 between Rutherford B. Hayes and Samuel Tilden. Tilden won the popular vote, but the Electoral College vote was very close and depended on three contested states in the South, South Carolina, Louisiana, and Florida. These three states that each sent two slates of electors from both parties. The Congress had to decide which of the state electors to accept. Michael will tell us what happened in the 1876 election and how the legislature can play a role in disputed presidential elections. Our second speaker is Andy Shapiro, who is a litigation partner at Quinn Emanuel. Andy will speak about the legal strategies that the presidential candidates will employ in states that are contested in the current presidential election. Our third speaker is Nate Persley, who is a law professor at Stanford Law School. Nate will tell us what we will likely know on election night. After our first three speakers, we'll have our first question and answer session, and my hope is that all the speakers will join in the discussion. Our fourth speaker will be Seth Stevens-Davidowitz, who is a former Google data scientist and is the author of the book, Everybody Lies, Big Data, New Data, and What the Internet Can Tell Us About Who We Really Are. Seth is going to tell us about how to use big data and the various Internet searches to ascertain how undecided voters will lean. Our fifth speaker is Doug Rivers, who is a political science professor at Stanford and the chief scientist at YouGov. On election night, Doug will be working for CBS, and he will make the election calls for the various states. Doug is an expert in the use of Internet polling and the challenges that pollsters now face with limited landline use and restrictions on cell phones. Doug will comment on the deceptive and shy Trump voter, and Doug will discuss the polling for the contested U.S. Senate races. Our sixth speaker is Michael Gordon, who graduated with me at Penn in 1987. Michael worked as a spokesman in the Clinton Department of Justice. He is now a principal at Group Gordon, which is one of the top corporate public relations agencies. In Michael's free time, he writes a weekly progressive politics column for the Business Insider. I've asked Michael to discuss how the Supreme Court Barrett confirmation process will proceed over the next few weeks and what the long-term impacts of her nomination will be. 
what kinds of major legislation will pass in either a Biden or a Trump administration, and the future of the Affordable Care Act. Our final speaker is Greg Strimple, who is the president of the GS Strategy Group. Greg works with the Republican National Party and has been doing polling in this election cycle. I want to find out from Greg what he's seeing out there. Okay, that is our speaker lineup for today. Earlier this week, I sent out a survey with questions about the election to the 2,900 What Happens Next registered listeners. 350 of you completed the survey. You should know that this survey group, our listeners, is not indicative of the American population at all. It is much wealthier. It is much better educated, with a substantial number of you having postgraduate degrees, and much more Jewish than the general population. You are also much more politically engaged. In fact, 88% of you said that you follow politics very closely, and 98% said that you plan to vote in the election, which is absolutely mind-boggling considering that only 50% of Americans have voted for president in the past few decades. In this biased sample, 80% of you said that you plan to vote for Joe Biden for president, while only 12% for Donald Trump. This 68% Biden advantage compares to just 9% in the real clear politics average. Irrespective of your own voting behavior, 84% of you thought that Biden would win the presidential election. This compares to the current betting markets that puts Biden with a 65% likelihood of victory. 90% of the surveyed audience watched the first presidential debate, and 88% of those of you who did watch it thought that Biden was the winner. 98% of you thought that the Democrats would hold the House in this election. Two-thirds of you thought the Democrats would take over the Senate. If the Democrats do take the Senate, 60% of you thought the Democrats would end the filibuster, and a similar number of you thought the Democrats would pack the Supreme Court. In the case that the election is close, nearly 70% of you thought the presidential election would be decided by the Supreme Court, about 20% of you thought it would be decided by the Congress. If the election is contested in the courts, 56% of you thought that the courts would allow ballots that were not properly signed, and 44% of you thought that the courts would allow ballots that were postmarked after Election Day. I was wondering if there would be violence after the presidential election results were announced. 60% of you thought that if Trump wins, that we would experience violence in our cities similar to what uh, was experienced after George Floyd uh, died. And if, if Biden wins, you expect that there will be a similar violence with just a 35% probability, which is still amazingly high. All right, let's get started. Let's go to our first speaker, who is Michael Holt. Michael Holt joins us from the University of Virginia to discuss the 1876 disputed election. Go ahead, Michael. Uh, as Larry said, uh, the 1876 election pitted uh, the Republican uh, Rutherford Hayes, governor of Ohio, against Samuel Tilden, governor of New York. Uh, it was a campaign characterized uh, by lots of fraud and massive uh, physical, often violent voter intimidation against blacks uh, in the South. Uh, nonetheless, uh, this election produced the highest turnout rate of any presidential election in American history, 81.8%. Uh, ten states came in with over 90% of the potential electorate going to the polls. Tilden won the popular vote by about 240,000 votes out of 8.5 million cast. It took 185 electoral votes uh, to win this election, only, I might say, because 
Colorado was admitted as the centennial state uh, in the summer. Without Colorado, uh, Tilden would have won the election. Uh, by the end of election day, Tilden had 184 electoral votes, and Hayes had 166. 19 electoral votes from uh, the southern states Larry mentioned, Florida, South Carolina, and Louisiana, were in dispute. Uh, they happened to be the only former Confederate states that the Republican Party still controlled. Both parties claimed those votes. The Democrats were the first to claim them. Uh, both parties sent uh, men down to the state capitals to watch the returning boards count the votes. But the Republicans controlled uh, the returning boards in all three, and they awarded their electoral votes uh, to Hayes. Um, after voiding Democratic votes in a number uh, in all three states. The Democrats protested uh, and sent their own electoral votes from all three uh, in to Congress. Congress thus had to decide uh, who uh, got the electoral votes, uh, and the Constitution was mum uh, at that time on what Congress could do about it. It simply said uh, the states, uh, the electoral colleges were to meet, uh, the states, uh, the electoral votes were to be cast, they were to be sealed, sent in to the president of the Senate, uh, uh, who that is the vice president, and in a joint session uh, uh, it said, and the votes shall be counted, uh, but uh, counted by whom was left unclear. Uh, uh, an important point and an important difference from today's election is that the Congress had, uh, that had to decide this uh, was uh, the Congress elected in 1874, uh, not recently in 1876. This was the second session of the 44th Congress that had a huge Democratic majority in the House, uh, whereas uh, uh, the Republicans controlled the Senate, as was the case uh, today. Uh, there are two important points uh, uh, to make about this. Uh, Democrats around the country were threatening to march on Washington uh, uh, in armed posses uh, uh, to, to force uh, the election and inauguration uh, of Tilden. Uh, Tilden's papers in the uh, New York Public Library are filled uh, with telegrams uh, telling them this. Some said that we should raise uh, use, uh, union generals like George McClellan or Winfield Scott Hancock uh, to uh, lead this Democratic army. Uh, Tilden, to his credit, uh, uh, told all these people to cool off. Uh, nonetheless, uh, Grant, the sitting president, moved more troops to Washington uh, to protect it. Um, and the same, uh, the, the other uh, point that's important uh, to know is that Congress had voided some states' electoral votes in 1864, uh, in 1868, and in 1872 uh, under a joint rule, Joint Rule 22, that had been adopted by Republicans after the 1864 election. So this, this was the case. There was a threat that Congress could void uh, electoral votes. Uh, that was one of the Democrat strategies. If we avoid enough votes, nobody will have the 185 majority. It will go to the House, and the House will elect Tilden. The Republicans, on the other hand, insisted uh, that the president of the Senate, uh, the vice president had died. In this case, it was a senator from Michigan named Ferry, uh, should count uh, the votes. Uh, as I said, the Democrats uh, uh, insisted uh, that the uh, Joint Rule uh, 22 was still in effect, uh, and 
they could challenge Republican votes, or alternatively, and this is important, Congress cannot hold a joint session unless it's in the House of Representatives, and the Speaker of the House has to formally invite senators to come into the chamber for the joint session, uh, and the Democrats threatened not to invite uh, the Senate over. Uh, nobody would have the uh, electoral vote majority because it hadn't been counted, and the House would decide uh, in that case. Uh, so there was a standoff uh, until uh, January, at the end of January, uh, uh, I'm sorry, at the, at the beginning of January, uh, Congress uh, passed uh, something called the Federal Electoral uh, Commission Bill. Uh, this was done after a lot of haggling by separate committees uh, in the House and the Senate figuring out something to do. Uh, but this uh, Federal Commission Bill uh, uh, passed and it was signed into law by Grant. Uh, it proposed an electoral commission of 15 people, uh, five from the House, three Democrats and two Republicans, five from the Senate, uh, three Republicans and two Democrats, and initially four uh, associate justices of the Supreme Court who were to pick the fifth associate justice themselves. They didn't want uh, the uh, chief justice because he was from Ohio and a friend of Hayes. Um, uh, the theory was uh, that they, 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 the, the justices who were named were two Democrats and two uh, Republicans, and the theory was that they, those four would pick uh, an independent David Davis, uh, but right before the bill passed, uh, uh, the Illinois legislature elected Davis to the Senate, and he refused uh, to serve on the committee, uh, and, and, and instead... Uh, they, they picked a guy named Joseph Bradley, another Republican justice from New Jersey. Uh, the procedure was uh, that in the joint session, uh, the uh, envelopes were opened in the alphabetical order of the states, uh, and when they got to Florida, uh, uh, they had these two results. Uh, uh, the, the session uh, adjourned in the House, and, uh, and uh, the, the votes were sent uh, to uh, the Electoral Commission. Uh, they uh, uh, heard uh, lawyers testified before it. Uh, uh, they heard... Uh, certain amounts of evidence, uh, and then they decided they would then send their finding back to the Speaker of the House. Uh, he would call the Senate back into joint session, uh, and he would read what they said. Uh, and then the bill that had created this commission uh, said that uh, either House could reject uh, the findings uh, of this commission, uh, but it would take both houses to concur in rejecting it, otherwise uh, the uh, finding would stand. Uh, well, as you uh, may know, uh, the commission decided uh, in every case, and there was an additional uh, vote in question, uh, one that uh, Democrats simply tried to steal in Oregon uh, on a technicality, uh, but by an eight to seven vote, uh, uh, the uh, commission awarded uh, all uh, 20 uh, electoral votes uh, to uh, uh, Hayes. So he won the election 185 to 184. Uh, now, uh, there were certain questions raised in these hearings, particularly in front of the Electoral uh, uh, Commission, uh, that are current, that have current residence now. Uh, one was, when is a presidential election over? 
when does it uh, when is it over uh the republicans said that it was over uh on the day the electoral college met and that nothing that happened after that was relevant to the decision uh, the Democrats said, uh, no, the election was not over until Congress counted the votes and declared a winner. Uh, in this case, that would be in, in February uh, of that particular year. It'll be January uh, this, this uh, coming year. Uh, but nobody said the election was over on the day uh, that people cast votes. Uh, the sec- a second question that's relevant was, could Congress challenge uh, the electoral votes uh, uh, sent in uh, from the states and, and go, go behind uh, the returns that came in to, uh, to find out who actually deserved uh, the electoral votes uh, from those states? Uh, the Democrats said, yes, Congress must. Uh, the Republicans said, no. Uh, and they called, uh, they cited states' rights doctrine here. They said the Constitution explicitly said states and states alone should choose presidential electors and Congress should have nothing to do with it, nor should a commission created by Congress. Uh, and finally, uh, there was a question, should the Supreme Court play a role in deciding this? Obviously, they put uh, uh, judges on this commission, uh, but Democrats, uh, when they were fiddling around with what to do, with what to do before uh, the Federal Commission, Electoral Commission uh, bill was passed, uh, said only Supreme Court justices should have a voice uh, in determining the outcome election, uh, quite unlike uh, the Democratic uh, argument uh, in 2000 uh, this year. Uh, so I think I'm finished. Michael, thank you. We'll come back to you to Q&A in a minute. Okay. Uh, our next speaker is Andy Shapiro. Andy is a litigator and partner at Quinn Emanuel. Uh, he's also the former ambassador to the Czech Republic. And he's going to talk about legal strategies for contested presidential elections. Go ahead, Andy. All right. Well, uh, having heard that, I'll say what's past is prologue. Um, the battle is already going on, and there is a lot to cram into six minutes, but I'll try to keep it to six minutes and one second. Both sides are lawyered up right now. There is hand-to-hand combat already going on in the states. I'm going to talk about three phases, pre-election, election day, and post-election. So pre-election, what are we seeing right now? It's primarily, as I'm sure you've read, fights over how the elections are going to be conducted. And let me give you a piece of background. The elections clause of the Constitution, Article 1, Section 4, says in relevant part that the time, place, and manner of holding federal elections is to be prescribed by the state legislatures. Um, Secondly, there's a provision in the federal code that sets election day as, um, as I'm sure you all know, the Tuesday after the first Monday in November. And much of the litigation that's going on right now is relying on those provisions, the elections clause and, and the law setting election day. There are claims brought mostly by Republicans that accommodations that are being made by state authorities other than the legislature, because remember, it's the legislature that sets the time, place, and manner, but Uh, provisions that are being made by the secretaries of state or election boards to deal with COVID, to deal with surges of absentee ballots are impermissible because they, this is the claim, change the time, place, or manner of the election uh, or change the election day, they'll say, by by allowing counting of ballots past November 3rd in some way that is impermissible. So a few examples, provisions by, by state authorities that expand access of who can vote absentee, that ease witness requirements or other technical requirements that allow drop boxes that might extend the due date for when your ballot gets in, that issue protocols about postmarks or or the lack of postmarks, 
um, rules that allow processing of ballots before the election day. Now, processing, not counting, that's important. Um, uh, pulling them out of their outer envelopes and, and dealing with any challenges. And that leads into one of the most hard-fought areas right now, which is developing notice and cure rules. So if a ballot comes in and there's something improper about it, what can you do to, to notify the voter and to cure that, that problem? Um, that, along with a few mundane things like mask requirements or the number of poll workers, all of these are the subjects of litigation in states right now as we speak. And the legal basis for these challenges, primarily the elections clause that I mentioned, time, place, and manner. Also, the claims are being brought under the equal protection clause. So Republicans generally are saying, look, there's a greater increase, there's a greater likelihood of fraud in these circumstances, and uh, my vote will therefore be diluted. That violates the Equal Protection Clause, they will say, or, or other legal provisions. And all of this, though, is proceeding against the backdrop of a legal principle that some of you may be familiar with. It's called the Purcell Principle, which says that courts shouldn't change election rules during the period of time leading right up to an election, because that could confuse voters and create problems for officials administering the election. So as a litigant, you want to wrap yourself in the choices that are made by the state if you can. You don't want to be attacking what the state has done, and that means there's fight, there are fights going on now also to try and get state bodies to, to pass appropriate accommodations. And, and we just saw last week in a case from South Carolina called Endino that went up to the Supreme Court on an application for a stay. That principle, this principle of not getting involved too close to the date of an election was invoked to strike down a federal court's ruling that had loosened some state procedures in South Carolina, that it said, okay, you, you need to loosen your procedures in, in light of what's going on with COVID and the surge of voters. Justice Kavanaugh wrote in a separate concurrence to say we're doing this because of Purcell, which says we shouldn't get in, federal courts shouldn't get involved in these um, battles too close to an election. Many observers looked at that and said, okay, that's fine, but when the shoe's on the other foot, Will Purcell be, be invoked? And yesterday, there was uh, a, an important ruling out of a court in Pennsylvania where a Trump-appointed judge um, invoked the Purcell principle to reject a Republican request that would have had a federal ask, that was asking federal courts to tighten or change certain state procedures, claiming that that was necessary in order to prevent fraud. So there's a fair amount of deference to the states. The cases are coming in different postures. We should watch to see if Purcell is applied consistently. On to item two, what might we see on election day? There's a very different set of issues. Many of them, uh, deal, uh, many of them are, are in, in the nature of voter, in, voter intimidation or interference. Interference by who? Well, first of all, private militias, something that might have seemed a little bit silly if I had talked to you about that three or four years ago, but having seen yesterday or the day before the uh, unsealing of this indictment against these uh, yahoos in Michigan who were talking about kidnapping Governor Whitmer. You've seen in, in Kenosha armed groups facing off in Portland. It's not beyond the realm of possibility. That's not likely to be the subject of civil litigation. It's more likely to involve um, law enforcement, but there, there are state and federal remedies. It could get messy. More likely to, to turn up in litigation uh, on Election Day, and some of this maybe even a little before it, would be intimidation or interference by party entities. I know Rick said at the top of the call we're politically neutral, but I'm not politically neutral, or at least I can state the facts. And the, the, the facts are that the Republican National Committee has just been released from a longstanding consent decree, which, which had basically restricted certain so-called ballot security operations. So for 35 years, they had been prohibited from 
uh, mounting the so-called ballot security operations. Now they're free to do it, and, and they're seeking 50,000 volunteers, 50,000 volunteers, to watch polls and challenge so-called suspicious voters. Now, the Voting Rights Act, Section 11B, prohibits voter intimidation, and states all, almost every state has regulations, every state actually has regulations about who can be a poll watcher, who can be an election monitor. Some of those were challenged in the Pennsylvania case. Republicans were seeking to have that loosened so that more people could be in or around a polling place monitoring it. As of now, that has not been successful. But on Election Day itself, you're likely to see or you could see applications for temporary restraining orders, other types of preliminary relief. The difficulty for the litigants involved is going to be gathering evidence in real time that's more than scattershot because it's not really enough to just come in with anecdotal evidence. I can tell you the litigants are, are preparing for that, to have to be ready with, to, to gather the evidence and, and run into court if necessary, but that still leaves a question of how do you actually enforce it on Election Day. The, the, the other category of intimidation that we might see on Election Day, I'm sorry to say, would be from the federal government itself. President Trump and some around him have talked about invoking the Insurrection Act. Um, you can imagine that happening on a pretext of protecting voting rights based on claims maybe that uh, undocumented aliens are voting or, or Antifa or the Democrats are, are committing fraud. Um, again, there was a time when that would have seemed unimaginable, but we saw in Portland unmarked un, uh, cars of federal agents in, in plain clothes swooping in uh, against the wishes of state authorities to enforce supposedly federal interests, so it's, it's not impossible. We might also see on Election Day mass challenges at polling places or at counting locations, um, an effort to either stop the count with Trump ahead or just gum up the works. Now, why would one group or another want to gum up the works? That brings me to my final topic, which is what we might see post-election. So, of course, we'll see some of the usual challenges and, and litigation fights, challenges based on you know, illegible postmarks or lack of postmarks, so-called naked ballot in, in Pennsylvania or other similar states where you, you need a secrecy ballot uh, inside the, your envelope, a secrecy envelope. Of course, there will be recount battles, but all of that, all of this gumming up of the works and slowing things down might be in service of a different scenario, which we might call 1876 on steroids. It's the nightmare scenario, and it's a, what some people call a legislative power grab. Uh, what do I mean by that? Well, 3 U.S. Code Section 2 provides that if a state has failed to make a choice of electors by a certain date, the legislature can then select them. So the key question will be, if, if, if it's close, what constitutes a failed election in a state and who gets to decide that there has been one? And there are, unfortunately, incentives to slow things down and cast doubt so that the, uh, the uh, selection of electors gets thrown to the legislature. This year, the Electoral College meets on December 14th, 2020. As you may know, there's a safe harbor uh, provision that, that is in effect until December 8th uh, of this year. But after that, if it's still unclear after December 8th who won a certain state, the legislature might seek to immediately declare a failed election and select a slate of pro Trump electors. Um, everyone will be running to court if that happens, and it gets particularly tricky in states that have Republican legislatures but Democratic governors, which so happen to be a lot of the swing states this year. Wisconsin, Pennsylvania, Michigan, North Carolina, others have this situation where there's a Republican legislature which may seek 
to grab power, saying we have the right to select the electors because the election, the count is taking too long, the count is unreliable, there's been too much fraud. Um, there will be litigation about whether this, this statute that gives authority to the legislature means just the legislature on its own, or does the governor play a role, as the governor might in, in when ordinary legislation is passed, and, and who has standing to sue. Um, these could end up in the reconstituted uh, uh, United States Supreme Court. Um, two other things that I'll close on. One, um, uh, I think it goes without saying that if there's a large enough margin, none of this might matter and, and come to pass because this is going to be state by state and ordinarily would be in a state where, where the uh, count at least appears close. And then finally, with these pre-election fights, there will come a time soon where the um, officials in the states and the official of, of, of officials of the parties are going to say we need certainty, even if the procedures are sub-ideal. So I think some of this pre-election litigation is likely to taper off in the couple three or four days, five days, week before the election, because even if uh, the sides don't have what they want, uh, some clarity is important. All right, I'll stop there. Thanks, Andy. Okay, uh, our next speaker is Nate Persley uh, at Stanford Law School. He will chat about what we will know on election night. Go ahead, Nate. Thanks very much. Uh, so I'm going to start by wearing my hat as a political scientist, and then I'll put back on my hat as a, a law professor and talk a little bit about uh, some of these other issues that have come up. First, if you pay attention to conventional wisdom right now, um, we should be in for the long haul. And by that, I mean that we should be uh, expecting that the vote counting will take a week or more, um, some say even a month, and that we should prepare the public uh, not for election night, but for election week or election month. Um, and the idea here is that because uh, roughly half of Americans are going to be voting by absentee ballot or vote by mail, that then there's going to be a large repository of uncounted ballots on election night that will, that will take several days, if not weeks, to count, and that will um, also be accompanied maybe by litigation over the character of those ballots. Um, that then often leads to admonitions, um, most recently by, by some pretty eminent political scientists, uh, that we should resist the temptation to call elections on election night as we have historically, and by we we mean the decision desk in the network, uh, because um, there's, you know, it, 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 there's so many ballots that are outstanding, we should wait until uh, all the ballots uh, are counted. Let me say first that um, it has never been the case that on election night, or even shortly thereafter, that all the ballots are counted. Um, as we know here in California, and certainly in most of the vote by mail, the Western states, um, you will have millions of ballots, even in a good year, a uh, non-controversial year, which will come in after election day and will be processed and counted. Um, some states allow for receipt of ballots up to two weeks after election day. And so while we are in a unique situation given the number of mail ballots and particularly the states where we'll be coming in this year, um, the fact that it takes uh, many weeks in order to get all the ballots in is not unique to this election. Um, the question is, uh, are we in a situation where um, we should hold back the information that is readily available um, for fear of uh, deceiving the public as to who is winning and, and then cementing expectations that later have to be overturned. Um, so the, 
you know, the, the concern, of course, is that on election night, if you pay attention to the partial results on election day, that you will see what's known as a red mirage, right, because uh, the Republicans and Donald Trump will um, be winning the election day vote, the in-person vote, and that will later and slowly be replaced by a blue shift because of uh, the disproportionate share of votes, uh, absentee ballots going to Joe Biden. Um, our, our surveys that Charles Stewart and I have done at healthyelections.org uh, confirm what everybody else is saying, that in some of these states you're getting almost two to one uh, absentee ballot votes for um, Joe Biden, and maybe it'll be 60-40, but whatever it is, it's, it's substantially uh, in the Democrats' favor. Um, I'll only say that, you know, we, we, these surveys were taken before the president's illness. Who knows whether maybe some Republicans will now be uh, more likely to vote by mail. And for that matter, there's certainly been a clarion call out to Democrats that they should be voting uh, more in person and early. And so, so we assume, though, that there's going to be this large repository of Democratic ballots uh, that are more likely to be counted later. Um, and if you see what happened in the primaries, there's risks of all this, not just litigation, but controversy over ballots, mishandling and the like. Look at what happened in New York, where it took them over a month to count ballots. Look what happened, you know, where, where Wisconsin in its primary said that it wanted to wait a week. And so there are those possibilities. But having said all of those caveats and emphasizing that, look, we should prepare the public for a longer count than usual because we want to uh, manage expectations, there is a lot that we're going to know on election night, and in all likelihood, on election night or in the 48 hours afterwards, we will have a good idea as to who won the election. Um, that is because not every state is like Michigan um, and Pennsylvania or even Wisconsin, um, uh, and even those states are not the caricatures that, that people uh, make of them where they're, you're not going to know anything for 72 hours or more. A place like Florida, uh, counts its, begins processing its ballots three weeks before Election Day. A state like Arizona actually counts them starting uh, at least a week before Election Day. Based, uh, and Florida will be reporting some results immediately or very soon after polls close. And we will get a very good idea about the state of the race. Now, if this election is like Bush for, like the 2000 election, or if it's even like the 2016 election, we are in for the long haul because the late-breaking absentee ballots will be determinative. But um, from the fully counted or nearly fully counted states that will be reporting on election night, as well as the nearly fully, county, fully counted or fully counted counties on election night, we will have a sense very early on about where the tide is turning. Um, and so uh, one thing that Charles Stewart and I emphasize in this Wall Street Journal article with the same title of my remarks here about what we'll know on election night is that there, there's a good reason that we don't want the networks to sort of shut up uh, and wait until most of the ballots are counted. Um, in that, those hours and those maybe days right after the election, that's the opportunity that if there is an information void, that it will be filled by malicious actors and maybe even the campaigns themselves declaring uh, unjustified victory. Um, the networks have to, I think, be honest about what we do know at that time and uh, to counteract what would be, whether foreign or domestic sources of misinformation as to who uh, the likely, likely victor is. Um, and so, so 
so while we, we should prepare for the worst uh, and hope for the best, um, and we should inoculate the public on thinking that this is an election just like any other, what we need to do is on election night, we should not be, many of the networks are at least abandoning, uh, and the New York Times did even in the last election, the idea of precincts reporting, which is a useless statistic, um, uh, given that the way that different um, jurisdictions count precincts when it comes to absentee ballots is very different. Some, some jurisdictions actually have, for a county, an entire absentee ballot precinct. So if you say percent precincts reporting, that's not uh, terribly useful. Uh, it's a critically important that we estimate the expected vote. This is something, by the way, that Facebook will be doing uh, in its reporting so that you can get a sense of how much of what is in. It's not uh, based on precincts that, that are outstanding, but how much vote is outstanding so you can get a sense of uh, whether the early returns are a good description of what might end up happening if you have all the votes in. Um, these partial returns, even though we, we aren't going to be able to stop counties and, for that matter, the networks reporting the partial returns, uh, it's critical that, that there be emphasis that these would be misleading. Um, and as I said, it's important to pay attention to the fully reported states and counties. And most importantly, what we hope with the, with the networks is that they'll be doing comparisons with 2016 so that it's not enough just to show how much red and blue is on the map at any given time, but to show essentially how red or how blue it is. Um, because um, if you can show that Donald Trump is doing better or worse around the country in the fully reported counties and states, that will give people a very good idea as to the state of the race and whether um, it's going to look like 2016 again. As I said, you know, if it is like 2016, if it's that close, and or if, let alone if it's like uh, 2000, then we are more in the you know potential margin for litigation that both the previous speakers talked about. I'll only say here that you know th there there are two at least two models, and though we would probably be breaking those models with a third this election, whether a sort of Bush versus Gore model, which is highly litigation focused, maybe federal court involvement and like, or the 1876 model, which is using all the machinery of the Electoral College and um, the Constitution and the Electoral Count Act now. Um, uh, I think that, look, whether it's 1876 or 2000, our politics right now are so raw that we should not expect um, this to proceed in a kind of legalistic uh, manner, and it's something that, that we should all be concerned about, which is why I would end with what's the election administrator's prayer. Oh, God, whatever happens, please don't let it be close. Uh, and so if it's a close election, all the vulnerabilities in the electoral system are going to be seen as outcome determinative. Hopefully, we, on election night, we'll have margins that are large enough so uh, that we'll be clear as to who won the election. Thanks, Nate. Okay, so uh, we're going to go for a few minutes of Q&A to discuss what we've just heard, and then we'll go back to our next group of speakers in a minute. Uh, Michael, why don't I start out with you? Fine. Yeah. What... Um, when you, you heard about um, some of the litigation approaches of, of using the courts, um, and also the fact that uh, we're, we're particularly polarized right now, let me start with that angle for a second first. Um, how was the country in 1876? Was it also extremely polarized? Um, and why wasn't there violence? Or uh, what was it like when no one knew who was going to be president months after the election? 
Well, there was a real threat of violence. The country, uh, the, the Democrats had been out of power uh, since 1860. Uh, or 1861 when Lincoln was inaugurated, uh, and they were chomping at the bit uh, to get in. And this is particularly true of Southern Democrats uh, who wanted to make sure there was no uh, federal enforcement of black voting rights in the South. They uh, they were especially anxious. And, and reading the letters that came in to uh, 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 Tilden uh, from the South, uh, those guys are desperate. But, but it was uh, it was very interesting. They said we don't dare. Uh, uh, do anything violent. Uh, we we don't want uh, to re- uh, start another civil war. It's up to you, Northern Democrats, uh, to be violent and and to uh, uh, force uh, 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 Tilden's uh, uh, victory. Uh, uh, the other thing is uh, uh, about legal uh, strategy, and I, I end my book uh, by. Uh, uh, wondering why uh, the Gore campaign didn't do this in 2000. Uh, Democrats uh, uh, relied on a, on a legal doctrine called quo warranto uh, to challenge Republican electors, uh, and they got a ruling in Florida uh, from a court that the Republican electors uh, weren't the electors. They had no right to uh, cast the vote, and that uh, uh, they rested their case in Florida on that, and and people were telling children uh, 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 to uh, uh, you know uh, seek writs of quo warranto against uh, Hayes if you uh, won the election. But the the country was on edge. I mean uh, the, uh, uh, the, the 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 telegrams coming into Tilden about uh, uh, you know raising these armed forces, and of course in the South the the violence Violence uh, that had been used uh, against blacks. I mean, armed posse's would uh, show up at Republican rallies uh, to deter speakers. Uh, uh, the term "bulldozed," uh, believe it or not, came from this election. Uh, uh, and in Louisiana, they talked about parishes being bulldozed, and I wondered what this meant. And, and a story in the New York Times explained it meant giving black voters a dose of the bullwhip if they thought they uh, uh, were going to dare to vote Republican to uh, 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 frighten them away from the polls. So there was uh, considerable tension. The country was uh, definitely polarized uh, on political lines and, and partially on uh, sectional lines as well. You know, when they, that to say that your typical high school textbook would spend any time on the election of 1876, but what they did say, if I recall from my own high school experience, was that uh, there was some sort of a grand compromise between the North and the South. They would give the presidency to Hayes in exchange for, for example, uh, Northern troops uh, being removed from the South, uh, that's, and the Southern Democrats being acquiescent to that decision. Um, but it doesn't sound like that was, there was any grand compromise at all. It all came down to an 8-7 vote, and that was it. Uh, no, I, uh, <laughs> uh, you know, this is Van Woodward's famous idea about a compromise of 1877, and I, I won't go into it, but I try to spend some time in, in the book, uh, disputing that, and I, a lot of other people, uh, uh, he's, he's got the timing right, uh, the talking about the deal that was going on between, uh, Republicans and Southern Democrats in the House, uh, was all before the Federal Electoral Commission, uh, had been created. It was still whether the, uh, the, the 
House would allow a joint session uh, to meet at all. And that, again, that was the leverage the Democrats had. They could gum up the works simply by uh, uh, preventing uh, Congress from going into joint session uh, and carrying out the count of the votes. Uh, but uh, no, uh, the, uh, I think the Compromise of 1877 is a myth. Okay. Andy, a question for you. Um, during the Florida recounts during Bush versus Gore, the, the, the Gore uh, team tried to get votes recounted in very specific counties, uh, counties where the Democrats uh, had done particularly well. Uh, and they did not request uh, new vote counts in Republican counties. And I think that may have been one of the reasons uh, why the U.S. Supreme Court thought that they had to intervene, because it it, um, the, the vote process wasn't being done in an even sort of way. Are you cognizant of that um, sort of logic and decision-making and, and part of the strategy that may be employed this time? Every aspect of what happened in 2000 has been looked at by, by both sides, I'm sure, you know, under a microscope again. And yes, so, and I think ultimately it turned out, right, when the New York Times did a... a um, uh, calculation of the, that the recount in the uh, that Gore wanted in the counties anyway probably wouldn't have changed the result. Only a statewide uh, um, recount would have. And I think that it was seven to two on on the you know the the equal protection violation. But but the the court still divided five to four ju- just on the remedy. So um, I think lessons were learned. Uh, in that case, and one of those lessons, you know, since Bush v. Gore is now precedent, even though it's maybe just a one-time only precedent, is that, um, uh, you know, however silly it might have seemed at the time, the equal protection argument in, in Bush v. Gore is the law now. And if there's going to be um, uh, recount litigation, which, as I said, could be a whole separate topic because each state has its, has its own provisions, but now there's an overlay of federal law from Bush v. Gore, um, the sides are going to have to account for that. On, on the other hand, you know, it's it's going to be a, a different Supreme Court now, too, and if I take a, a, a cynical view, you know, I think it's possible to be fairly cynical about Bush v. Gore, though I agree with you, there were strategic mistakes made by by the Gore campaign. It'll be interesting to watch how Kavanaugh and Roberts go on this. Roberts is an institutionalist. Kavanaugh, with his... his um, concurrence in this case out of South Carolina, even though it was favoring the Republican position, it was an institutionalist type of concurrence. So we'll see where those two end up. Okay. Um, you know, I, in my survey, I threw out, I thought, were a bunch of ridiculous um, aspects to what judges might conclude, and I was really surprised that uh, a majority thought that um, courts would allow ballots that were postmarked after Election Day um, if the signatures were botched. Um, do you think courts are going to be ex- expansive with regard to, or are they going to be strict? I, I, was, I was surprised by, by, by that survey result, too. I, I don't think you're going to have a situation in which ballots that are postmarked after Election Day are counted. The question is, what do you do about ballots, envelopes where there is no postmark or the postmark is illegible, which tends to be a lot. I mean, they're, 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 you look at your own yeah, mail. Sure. 
out of lots of mail where there's no postmark. And so fights going on in the states right now are about, for example, what should the presumption be? If, if something, uh, if a ballot arrives, you know, four days, three days after the election and it has no postmark, is the presumption that it was mailed after the election and, and therefore the burden is on whoever wants to try and show that, that it was mailed before the election to do that or is the presumption the, the other way? Um, I, I don't know if we can predict right now how, how courts are, are, are going to ad address that, but in some states, the, um, not the legislatures necessarily, but the secretaries of state or the boards of election have provided guidance saying you should count ballots that come in with a certain within a certain number of days, even if the postmark itself is, is not present or not legible, and, and the presumption will be that, that it's valid. And others, they're not, and that's a topic of, of litigation right now. I don't think there's a situation in which something postmarked after the election could be counted. Um, signature requirements, et cetera, states, North Carolina, for example, you know, South Carolina, you have, have uh, passed guidance that would, not South Carolina, strike that, North Carolina, that, that would ease the requirement because of COVID to have some third-party witness come to your home and, and vouch that you signed your ballot. In Minnesota, they, I think, quite reasonably said that if you're a registered voter and you're voting by mail, you don't need to have a witness, but if you're someone who's newly registering, you, you have to. Um, those all seem reasonable, and I think most courts will probably enforce those. Actually, and, and Andy, let me. This is Rick Banks. Let me follow up with that because I was was really struck by your your discussion of efforts to constrain state discretion uh, in the with regard to how the election is conducted and which votes are counted. Uh, so it, it seems as though uh, there, um, you know, one could imagine two different regimes here. One is where we have a symmetrical rule constraining states as between state efforts that make it easier for people to vote versus efforts that make it more difficult for people to vote. And the other is that we have an asymmetrical rule where the state's going to have more discretion to expand the possibilities for, vo for, for voting and less discretion to limit possibilities for voting. Which of those rules do we have, the asymmetrical one or the, or the, or the symmetrical one? You know, the, 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 to the extent that there's a rule, the, the rule right now is, is, is neutral as between you know, what, the, what the state's trying to do. It's really just a question of is what the state – is this change in the process something that affects the time, place, or manner of the election? And if so, was it is, – is the actor doing this the state legislature or something else? So if it's a federal court coming in, it's pretty clear a federal court has a, has a much harder time. It can be done. There are equal protection of voting rights laws right. to allow this to, to impose a change. But the trickier situation gets to be when you're deciding among state actors. So where you have a Republican legislature and a Democratic secretary of state, and the secretary of state says we're not going to require a witness for someone who's already registered, you, you, you then have... Um, parties coming in and saying, not, you know, it's not a crazy claim, saying, well, wait a minute, it's only the legislature that could make that change. Okay. Can I jump in? Rick? Go ahead, Nate. Nate, just, Nate, Nate that was for you, too. Well, just to, to, so people understand the implications of this argument, which, first of all, we, we will get a glimpse as to whether five members of the Supreme Court believe this argument this week, because the um, a, Probably this week, because the appeal or the the uh, cert petition from um, I guess petition for stay from Pennsylvania involves this question. 
And so we'll, we'll have an idea as to whether, for the first time, you'll get a majority of the Supreme Court adopting what is known as the independent state legislature doctrine. But just so people start realizing how, I mean, this is like a, a law professor's exercise here, why this is complicated. You, if you start thinking about, well, can state courts not interpret the state constitution against what a state legislature passes because under the federal constitution that state legislature has sort of this special authority what about governors and their ability to veto state legislation what about um initiatives right there's all kinds of of complexities here because but if they go in that direction it means that there's at least always some daylight that could be exploited whenever a state court tries to rein in the state legislature or to interpret the, the state statutes that apply to elections. Could I jump in here, Michael Holt here? Hi, Michael. Uh, Please. Uh, uh, this, is, this is on this point, and it was a question I was going to ask of, uh, later, but uh, uh, in 1876, the state Supreme Courts of both South Carolina and uh, uh, Florida ruled that the laws that created the Republican-run uh, state electoral commissions uh, were unconstitutional, and therefore their actions uh, in choosing uh, the Republican electors were void. Uh, when this went up to the uh, for a hearing uh, in the, the Federal Electoral Commission, uh, by an 8-7 to seven vote, they ruled that the Constitution gave sole authority to state legislatures and that state courts had no voice in the matter. Is that still the standing law? Well, I think that's the, the question that Nate just raised. We don't know. <laughs> ah, okay. <laughs> right. Yeah, I mean, this is why... Yeah, I mean, here, the the problem here uh, th that was a very strange set of circumstances, but but uh, in part because they're going beyond the prescription of state law. So so this this issue came up in Bush versus Gore as well, which is when a state court interprets the state law, at what point does its interpretation go so far beyond what the state legislature had intended that it's essentially acting like a legislature? Or if it interprets the state constitution to check the legislature's um, uh, statute, is it essentially potentially violating the U.S. Constitution? And does it make a difference if that state constitution was actually passed from the, by the legislature earlier on, which is one of the contentions in Pennsylvania? Uh, for most people on this call, this this is going down, you know, way down the rabbit hole. But the, the <laughs> point that, that you need to keep in mind is that why, when will the federal courts be, on what basis will they be inter intervening? And this is one of the more, more sort of popular or, or likely ways that they might intervene to take it out of the state court system into either U.S. Supreme Court or into the federal courts by saying that when the state administrative system or the state court has gone too far, that it violates the U.S. Constitution. I just have a question for Nate. Wow. Nate, you, you seem very nervous about what the role of, I'll call it the information providers, are saying on the night of the election and the days thereafter, and the, and the thought that they need to be careful what they uh, say to, not to inflame the passions of the people. Um, but these days, you, you referenced um, the major networks as an example, but news is so far outside the major networks now, and it's, it's so diffusely provided um, and so partisan and often in its um, description. How could you really expect 
um, the decision by any of the major networks and how their behavior will have an influence at all, or um, will the, those flames be impassioned irregardless of what happens? Larry, if I can just turn down that question for a minute, because I had the same thought. Also, I could see them playing by different rules. Like, they're not going to agree to a uniform set of rules. Some of them will just play by the rules that they think help their candidates. So uh, I had a similar thought as Larry. Well, yeah, Michael. Yeah, yeah, it was Michael Gordon. Thank you. I was going to say Doug is on the call, and I think he's bet, uh, Doug Rivers would be even better positioned on this high vantage point. That first of all, you have um, you know a large swath of the American public will be watching um, the networks um, and the power of the decision desks, particularly the Fox News decision desk, cannot be um, overstated here. And so I think that. Um, uh, and by the way, the Fox News Decision Desk are a group of professional, pretty independent folks. Um, I know some of the political scientists who are on that. It don't assume that it's going to be, you know, Sean Hanley influencing the Fox Decision Desk. Um, each decision desk has a bit of a different secret sauce, but for the most part, they are, you know, you're looking at the election returns and, may, and previous election returns, making inferences about um, um, where the election is going. Uh, Similarly, the social media platforms, both Twitter and Facebook, will be um, filtering out preemptive declarations of victory so that um, that, that will not be, at least they tell me, right, and then while well, they've announced this, that it's, they're, they're not going to allow um, for those stories to at least reach the top of your feed. Moreover, Facebook is um, partnering with Reuters as well as, as piggybacking onto the other networks in order to make call or to display the calls on election night and in the days after. So the decision desks are extremely important here because remember, we don't have a national election authority, unlike virtually every other country in the world. For the most part, historically, our national election authority is the Associated Press, right? Because they're the ones who end up um, um, reporting out and making calls at, at, at most levels of, of the electoral system. Uh, and so the decision desks, I think, are in a very important position here. They all are taking it very seriously. They, they know everything that I just said before about when the states are going to be reporting and what information is going to be there. And, then, and they're not going to base it on exit polls. The, the uh, decisions in the battleground states is going to be on uh, the votes that are uh, tallied at that point. So I think that the media is extremely important here um, because there are only, let's say, you know, 10 or so decision desks that people are going to be paying attention to. But by that logic, imagine that we go to sleep uh, on the next night and they, these desks have decided to not make a call. Um, when we wake up in the morning and we turn on our respective polarized uh, Fox versus MSNBC, they're both going to be screaming, you know, one way or the other. Um, and after election night, you know, who's going to be listening to um, what the CBS is, is, has decided or not? It's now a litigation. It's, it's, it's mail-in process. It's recounts. Um, it, it, doesn't the process change immediately after election night? It was post-midnight no, or post-2 o'clock. No, I think that just because the calls aren't made in all states doesn't mean we know nothing, right? We will have some states that are called. There's some states where we have near full information. And based on that, you can either say, you know, which way the 
wind is blowing. And so I think that that, and, and it's critical that the networks report that. I mean, so that, that so long as it, it's based on these fully reported states or nearly fully reported states, nearly fully reported counties, that'll give us a good sense of where things are going. And then that'll be ammunition to counteract false claims of victory by the candidate. Okay. All right, with that, let's go ahead and now into our second uh, half of the session, um, which will focus more on polling. Our first speaker is Seth Stevens Davidowitz, uh, a former Google data scientist and author of Everybody Lies. Um, Seth, tell us what uh, searches can tell us about the presidential election. Yeah, so uh, basically, I'll, I'll start with, uh, I, I wrote a book, book, Everybody Lies, on kind of the limitations of surveys and how frequently people don't tell the survey what they're really thinking uh, and the potential of internet data, particularly Google searches, to see what's really on people's minds. So kind of if you ask people, are you racist? Most people say no, but some of these people search for really racist jokes and other material uh, on Google. And in the previous election, uh, people asked me, can you kind of use this data to predict uh, what's going to happen in the election? And I kind of said, you know, based on my analysis that I thought Trump had maybe a higher chance than other people thought. To be totally honest, I'm not sure that if that's because I'm a genius or a pessimist, because I kind of always predicting horrible things are about to happen since I've been about two years old. Uh, but I do think there, there were uh, some clues in the, in the search data that Trump might have a better chance than people thought. Uh, I th I'm a little more skeptical in the power of the search data for making predictions this election uh, for reasons I'll discuss, but basically it's such an unusual election and uh, we don't have uh, necessarily any data in the past to know how to make sense of an election where so many people are voting from home or people are scared to vote because of a pandemic. Uh, so one of the ways to use potentially Google searches in predicting elections is predicting who's going to turn out in an election. So if you ask people in a survey, uh, many people will say they're going to vote, even if they have no intention to vote. Uh, and then, uh, or, or they, they, they're lying to themselves. They think they're going to vote, but they actually don't go to, go to vote in an election. And uh, I've shown, and some other people have shown, that uh, searches for information related to voting, how to vote, where to vote, uh, polling places, can be highly predictive of who's actually going to turn out to vote in an election, and much more predictive than surveys. Uh, so in the previous election, you saw that areas with high African-American populations, uh, searches for voting information were much lower than uh, in, in the previous election. And this was kind of a bad sign for Hillary Clinton, a good sign for Donald Trump. Uh, I think in this election, it's so hard to know what to make of voting searches when so many people are voting from, from home. And, and I think I'm pretty skeptical that you can go, uh, go from using these searches uh, to predictions in the same way you could in previous elections. Another indicator that's, I think, interesting uh, in the past is you can kind of predict who's going to win an election. In, in every previous presidential election, the candidate that has been searched first uh, wins the election. So, and, and within uh, a, a given election, uh, states where they search a particular candidate first more uh, tend to get higher vote share. So, for example, in the last election, people who search Trump-Clinton, like Trump-Clinton polls, Trump-Clinton debate, they were much more likely to go Trump. People who searched Clinton-Trump polls, Clinton-Trump debate, they were much more likely to go Clinton, uh, which is kind of interesting. It says a lot about psychology that you can give away who you're supporting based on how you think of the election, uh, basically who's first in your mind. Uh, this election, tr Trump-Biden searches are just like way more common than Biden-Trump searches. 
Uh, and I think part of that is that he's just such a powerful uh, figure in people's minds, uh, such a dominant figure and takes all the oxygen uh, and the attention from every, everyone that even a lot of Biden supporters think of this as the Trump-Biden election and think of the they're watching the Trump-Biden debate and are looking at Trump-Biden polls. So I think there still is some predictive power at the individual level that people who search Biden first are more likely to go Biden. Uh, I'm skeptical that we can go use too much at the at, at, at the uh, national level. Again, we've had so few elections to build the models on, and I think we've never had an election with, where, where so, one figure was so dominant in people's minds. Uh, so another question I get asked a lot is are there shy Trump voters? Uh, mainly because Biden is so uh, uh, far ahead in the in the polls right now. Uh, I think a lot of people think unless there are shy Trump voters, uh, then Biden w- will win. And there's a fear that there could be shy shy Trump voters. Uh, as I said, some people don't tell polls the truth. They tell polls what is socially desirable. Uh, I know Doug's going to talk a little bit about shy Trump voters. Uh, in general, I'd say I'm maybe a little skepticism even before I look at the uh, skeptical even before I look at the data uh, because I think in the circles that most people listening I, I, I was listening to uh, Larry's polling and most people on this call live in circles uh, where the predominant uh, the, the large majority of people that they hang out with are strong Biden supporters and think very lowly of Trump and Trump supporters uh, so I think they naturally feel that there could be pressure to, uh, to to not admit that you're a Trump supporter. I think we have to keep in mind that there are parts of this country where the majority, the overwhelming majority of people are Trump supporters, and it might be embarrassing in those places to admit that you're a Biden supporter. Uh, so I think it's a little bit shows a little, I think it's a little bit a bubble to think that, uh, that uh, the majority of Americans would be embarrassed to support Trump. I don't think there's too much evidence for that. I'm playing around a little bit with a, a new data set. And, and, you know, this is kind of not ready for prime time where you actually can compare uh, the same individuals, their entire internet behavior uh, of one, of individual searchers, of individuals and ask them survey questions. So that you can ask them, are you a Biden support? Are you gonna vote for Biden? Are you gonna vote for Trump? Uh, are you undecided? And then look at all the searches they make and the, the sites they visit. And it is interesting because sometimes people's uh, searches uh, and internet behavior don't necessarily correspond uh, to what they might be telling a pollster. Uh, so so uh, th- there are people who say they're undecided and are searching for and are reading all stories about how amazing Trump is and all the great things Trump are going to do and really negative stories about Biden. Uh, there are also, as I said, Bi- I think my, there might be shy Biden supporters. There are people whose uh, internet who say, might say they're, they're undecided or going for Trump and they're looking for, for a lot of anti-Trump stories. Uh, and there are some people who just answer polling questions randomly. So maybe that's the reason that, that, that their internet behavior disagrees with what they're saying. Uh, kind of my early look at the data is that I, I wouldn't say there's, there's evidence for too much try, try Trump or try, try Biden supporters uh, when you look at individual internet uh, behavior and polling data. Uh, I think one thing that search data can be really useful for in this election, even if it is a strange election, any election, is kind of knowing what stories have legs and what stories are getting a lot of attention and what uh, what is really what criticisms are kind of sticking uh, on people. I think uh, a lot of people in trying to make sense of what's going on in this election uh, forget uh, don't don't really consider just how unpopular Hillary Clinton was last time 
and compare compared to Hillary Clinton, Biden is much more popular. So in the previous in the 2016 election, uh, Donald Trump was kind of probably the, the least popular candidate in many many decades to run for president. But Hillary Clinton was by by some calculations the second least popular uh, person to uh, run for president in many decades. I think her net favorables were tied with George H. W. Bush for second uh, lowest for second worst. Uh, and there were about 22% of voters last time who uh, had unfavorable opinions of both Trump and Clinton. And Trump won those voters three to one. And this election, we see that Biden has much higher favorable ratings than Hillary Clinton did. And you see in the search data uh, that Biden's kind of the Teflon candidate where none of the criticisms totally stick that Trump's and, the, and Pence and the Republicans have been trying to uh, kind of scare people uh, away from Biden the same way they were able to scare people away from Clinton and get a lot of people in that category of people well, while they may not have liked Trump, who also didn't like, uh, don't like the Democratic candidate. And uh, not, none of them have worked uh, that well. So if you look at, for example, uh, kind of concerns about Biden's mental health and Trump has really been pushing the angle that uh, tr- that Biden has isn't as sharp as he used to be and he should take a dementia test and, uh, you know, he's not with it. He's not all there. And uh, certainly one of the more neg- one of the more common negative searches about Biden uh, are searches on Google for Biden dementia or searches related to Biden dementia. Does Biden have dementia? Uh, but it's really much smaller uh, story and gets much less attention than negative stories for Hillary Clinton did. So in t- October 2016, uh, th- there were about 12.5 times more searches for Clinton emails uh, than there are right now for Biden dementia. So that negative scandal uh, really was on people's minds. And, you know, many people were searching about it. Uh, some people are searching for, you know, concerns about Biden potentially having dementia, uh, but much fewer uh, searches for that. Uh, o- overall, there it just shows how, how unpopular Hillary Clinton uh, remains, that there are still for every five searches for Biden dementia today, there are still two for Clinton emails. So still people are kind of focused on things they didn't like about Hillary Clinton and not things concerns they have about Joe Biden. Uh, And this I found really surprising. There hasn't been much attack uh, from anybody about Trump uh, necessarily having uh, due to his age, any mental problems, but there for every two searches for Biden dementia, there's one for Trump dementia now on Google. Uh, so as much as Trump has been trying to scare people uh, that Biden might have dementia, you really see in the search data that it just hasn't had a, you know much legs. And and even though nobody's been talking about it, there there you know uh, one one to two ratio of people concerned that Trump might have dementia for concerns that Biden might have dementia. Uh, and then kind of just so we uh, I'll come back to you in Q and A in a few minutes. Um, okay. Our next speaker is Doug Rivers. Doug is a senior fellow at the Hoover Institution and a professor of political science at Stanford. He is the chief scientist at YouGov, and he'll be manning the uh, CBS uh, election desk on Election Day. Uh, Doug, go ahead. Thanks. Um, I'll follow up on what uh, Seth said about uh, shy Trump voters. Um, I'm not just skeptical about them. I think they're uh, uh, almost a complete myth. Um, there were problems in the uh, 2016 polls, uh, though overall the national results were within about uh, a half a point of the outcome. 
the problem was that we uh, overestimated the Clinton vote on the coast and underestimated it in uh, the Midwestern battleground states. Um, why was that? Was that because of shy Trump voters? Um, well, the tendency is, in, particularly in people uh, in groups like this, where you have huge fractions of uh, people saying they're going to vote Democratic, uh, to think that there's a uh, small minority of people uh, who uh, uh, think they're surrounded by Democrats and are embarrassed to say that uh, they like Trump. Um, if anything, it's the opposite. Uh, most Trump voters think that they are in the majority, and not just the slight majority. Uh, 95% of Trump voters say he's very likely to win the election. 95%. They obviously don't believe the polls. Um, it, uh, among Democrats, it's around 70% think Biden is going to win. Um, so, um, and then if you dig a little deeper, you ask people, how do you think your neighbors are going to vote? Um, and uh, only 1% of Trump voters think most or all of their neighbors are voting for Biden. They do not feel like they're surrounded by uh, uh, woke Democrats. Um, and then further, we've also asked, uh, you know, would you be, would your neighbors be surprised uh, that you're voting for Trump or if you're a Biden voter for Biden? Um, and it's uh, essentially of the uh, Trump voters living in Democratic areas, it's about 1%. The main reason people don't think their neighbors know how they're voting is because they don't talk about politics much. Uh, most people are not actually searching for information about how to vote. Uh, uh, it's surprising uh, how many are actually only barely cognizant that an election is on. Uh, the problem with the polls in uh, 2016 was not shy Trump voters, but enthusiastic Trump voters. Uh, we knew that Trump was doing very well among working class whites, but we underestimated how many of them would vote. Um, there was a surge of Republican turnout in rural and exurban areas. At the same time, uh, and I agree with Seth that Hillary Clinton was a very unpopular candidate, there was a decline in Democratic turnout by minorities and the young. Um, African Americans in particular, whose turnout was high in the two Obama elections, did not show up in sufficient numbers in 2016. Uh, and that's why uh, Clinton lost the Midwestern battleground states. Um, Will the same thing happen this year? Um, I don't think so. Um, in 2016, um, Trump boosted turnout among his base, but since taking office, Trump has been a boon to Democratic turnout. What you saw in 2018, which was an extraordinary level of turnout by both sides, actually, um, but Democrats had no enthusiasm problem that year. I don't think they have one uh, this year, at least as far as the polling and early voting statistics um, suggest this is going to be a high turnout election. Um, let me turn to the electoral map. Uh, there is this extremely loyal and vocal set of non-Trump uh, voters. Um, the problem for Trump is that this block was never a majority, never close to a majority. Um, and uh, he needs to expand that base to win this election. Um, is there a path for Trump to win? Sure. Um, win Florida, hold on to North Carolina and Arizona, uh, and win one of Pennsylvania, Michigan, or Wisconsin. 
uh, that'll get to an electoral uh, vote majority. Uh, the problem uh, for Republicans is that Trump is behind in all of these states, sometimes by a lot. Uh, Florida is the closest of these, but the others, uh, he's down typically by five to seven points. Um, there are places uh, that should be easy for Trump to win, uh, which uh, he must win if he's going to have any chance of being reelected. So we're currently, at least, um, he, he's either even with Biden or trails slightly. Um, these states are uh, Ohio, Iowa, and Georgia. If Biden wins these, he gets close to 400 electoral votes, uh, and the election's not close. My guess is uh, uh, he won't win all of these, but he may well uh, win one or two. Um, the Senate map is more challenging uh, uh, for Democrats. Um, they start down three seats, uh, and they'll probably lose the Alabama seat they won in 2018 because Republicans nominated a child molester. Um, that means Democrats need to pick up a four to get to um, 50 seats uh, and win the presidency to gain control of the Senate. Um, there are four vulnerable Republican incumbents who have been trailing their Democratic challengers for quite a while. Uh, Susan Collins in Maine, uh, Tom Tillis in North Carolina, Cory Gardner in Colorado, uh, Martha McSally in Arizona. Uh, though Collins is competitive and Tillis may benefit from the sexting scandal involving the Democratic candidate there. Um, there's a fifth seat. Uh, we released a poll with CBS this morning uh, that showed Jody Ernst was down four points, actually trailing Trump, who was even in Iowa. Uh, and that would give Democrats uh, uh, 51 seats and a clear majority. There are a few more seats like Montana, Georgia, even South Carolina, which could go Democratic in the landslide. I think that's unlikely. Um, so uh, while the odds are with the Democrats gaining control of the Senate, uh, there isn't a lot of room for error in that path. Um, let me finish uh, with a quick rundown of what I expect on election night. Um, I've been on the CBS decision desk for almost 20 years now. Um, our past uh, approach has been not to share much of the exit poll data until we are ready to call a race. Uh, at that point, you would color uh, state red or blue. Um, as uh, Nate personally said, that uh, most uh, battleground elections are not called based on exit polls. Uh, they're called on a combination of the exit poll and early vote returns. If it's really close, it's called, called solely on the vote. But um, there are these races that are three five-point races that you can call using a combination of the data. Um, so the result was that uh, a lot of states were not called till late in the night, uh, and uh, voters didn't have a great idea of exactly where the race stood. Um, the guidance from management has always been don't make a bad call and uh, in the time I've been doing it since uh, 2002, we haven't made a single incorrect call of the state. Um, 2020 is going to be a lot harder in many respects. Um, there are many more absentee ballots being cast. Um, the reliability of the in-person exit poll, which has uh, been a problem for a while, is even more suspect this year. Um, it's done in person. Social distancing makes in-person interviewing difficult. Um, and the consolidation of precincts means that you're not able to essentially measure changes with past voters reliably.
Um, if the networks did uh, what they've normally done, uh, there'd be fewer calls than usual, and election night coverage give a misimpression that it's a close race when it's not really. Um, I am, however, cautiously optimistic about the information that you'll be receiving on election night. Uh, first, um, contrary to some misinformation that uh, Nate mentioned, the uh, APSA presidents, um, that uh, absentee ballots, uh, there's quite a bit of information about them um, before they're counted. Um, the network consortium uh, conducts phone surveys that has for years of early and absentee votes that are combined with the election day estimates from the exit poll. Um, this has been greatly expanded in 2020 uh, so that we're going to have more information about absentee uh, and early vote than we've had in past years. Uh, we don't have to wait for all the mail ballots to be counted to have a good estimate of um, how they're splitting. Uh, in the past, the absentee polls have been much more accurate than the on-the-day exit polls. Um, second, um, we'll be categorizing races as toss-ups um, and leaning or called, as we've done in the past, but we've added a new category, likely Democratic or Republican, uh, that is short of a call. Uh, that uh, we expect will occur more frequently when there's uh, strong evidence that a race is going one way, uh, but uh, you need more vote to be counted. Uh, that will enable us to color more of the map in light red or light blue long before we have a complete count. Um, I think Nate mentioned the uh, uh, Fox decision desk. Um, Fox used to be a member of the uh, consortium that uh, the other networks uh, where they dropped out in 2018. Uh, however, I would say that uh, the Fox decision desk uh, is quite independent and has a high level of integrity, and I have um, high confidence uh, in what they're doing. Uh, they, there was an on-the-air dust-up between Arn and Michigan that runs the Fox decision desk and Carl Rove in 2012, uh, and Arnon won that one pretty uh, clearly. Uh, so I don't think there's going to be a problem of bias um, across the different sources. Um, and from the left, I, uh, the people who run the NBC decision desk and MSNBC I, uh, and CNN, I also have high levels of confidence in. Um, so um, if the election is close, I think we're going to be able to tell you it's close. If it's not, and right now, I don't think this election is going to be that close. Uh, we'll be able to tell you that, too. Uh, Florida, Ohio, and North Carolina will count most of their absentee ballots uh, before the close of the polls on election day. So there may actually be a blue mirage there um, as the absentee vote gets dumped at poll closing time. Uh, those states tend to count quickly. Um, and unless they're extremely close, um, I think that we should have uh, be able to say what direction they're going on election night. And if one or two or three of these go for Biden, there's not going to be a lot of suspense about how the election is going to turn out. Thanks. Thanks, Doug. Okay, um, Michael Gordon, our next speaker. He's the principal at Group Gordon Communications. Go ahead, Michael. So I'm going to talk about three issues today. First, the Amy Coney Barrett confirmation vote and its after effects. Second, the future of the Affordable Care Act. And third, what we can expect legislatively in a Trump or Biden White House. 
On Amy Coney Barrett, the Republicans have made the decision that they would rather have a sixth seat on the Supreme Court than keep the issue alive to help them with the election. If anything, voting on the nomination right before the election will take some of the gas out from Republican voters and further energize Democrats. Perhaps their view is that they're going to lose anyway, so they might as well go down with this victory as the exclamation point of their time in charge. It's hard to imagine the vote getting delayed until after the election. They need four Republicans to delay, and only two have stepped forward. Cory Gardner of Colorado, Martha McSally of Arizona, or Joni Ernst of Iowa could change their minds if they think it will help their Senate re-election, but they'll risk losing part of the Trump base if they go that route, so it seems unlikely. Tom Tillis of North Carolina and Lindsey Graham of South Carolina, who are in tough races, have, all gone, have gone all in with Barrett, so they're not on the table to change. If for some reason the vote is delayed post-election by Republicans who make a political calculation or feel it's the right thing to do after blocking the 2016 Garland nomination, I do see the GOP trying again to move forward in a lame duck, even though that will invoke more division than there already is. I do think waiting to vote on the nomination until after the election would keep their party engaged on the issue and marginally help them in the election. But if there's a huge blue wave, it could hurt them in getting the seat through. If the priority is getting Barrett on the court, they should do it before Election Day. If the priority is to try to help their chances even marginally on Election Day, they should wait. If Barrett is confirmed before a year end, Democrats will absolutely end the legislative filibuster if they're in the majority. There's no political downside to it. It's more of an inside baseball issue. It's hard to explain and not a kitchen table issue that real Americans care about. Plus, they'll be able to pass a lot of legislation quickly, assuming they hold the House and win the White House. It will be the final rule change in the operations of the Senate that traditionally made it the chamber of careful consideration. But the polarization of our nation is amplified by cable news and inspired by our leaders has brought us to this point. Packing the Supreme Court is more complicated. It is much easier for the average voter to understand that issue. The Democrats could be painted as, uh, painted as retributive for doing it and quickly will end up on defense while they're trying to accomplish much on the legislative front. Biden is not enthusiastic about court packing because he fears a slippery slope, but they want to hold on to this issue as a threat to Republicans for pushing through Barrett and also to keep the uh, keep the part of their base energized that wants to pack the court. If you made me guess, I don't think it will happen in the end, but the brazen hypocrisy of the Senate GOP in filling the Supreme Court seat in an election year may be enough for the Democrats to go for it. On the Affordable Care Act, the issue is coming before the Supreme Court again. It's hard to imagine the whole law getting t tossed out at this point. The theory of the case is that the law should be in invalidated in its entirety without the individual mandate. That seems like a big stretch, and the Supreme Court big-footed the case, uh, I think, to keep what remains of the law intact. This will happen even with Barrett on the court. If I'm wrong and the whole law does get tossed, either administration would, would be sent to the drawing board. I don't think much would happen under Trump except possibly something narrow on pre-existing condition. But if Biden had a Democratic Congress, he would restore pre-existing conditions as well as uh, health care for young adults on their parents' policy. He'd keep out the individual mandate and find ways to increase access to health care with the Medicare expansion. He'd also try to institute a public option in order, in order to add more competition to the market. On, on post-election legislation, if Biden wins, you can expect relatively swift action on racial justice issues, gun safety, infrastructure, executive branch, ethics reform, and climate. And you'll see a more aggressive economic support package for states, municipalities, citizens, and businesses while the economy is fondering. I could see his first 100 days being among the most consequential and productive of recent presidencies, particularly if Senate Democrats do eliminate the legislative filibuster. You'll also see Biden really try to reach out to Republican leaders to get their support for common sense measures to help combat the virus spread. 
These are not legislative measures, but he'll be working with reasonable Republican local, state, and federal officials to encourage mask wearing, hand hygiene, distancing, and also to make the case for the vaccine. Trump has shown a lot of distrust distrust on both the basics of fighting the pandemic and also the efficacy of a vaccine. And as a result, Biden will want to have reasonable Republicans by his side as he pleads the case. With that said, I do not see Biden working much with Republicans on legislation. Obama tried and uh, Obama tried and got burned early on, but I do see him building bridges with the GOP around the health crisis as a way to get it at bay. If Trump wins on the inside straight again and the, and the Democrats hold at least one branch of Congress, you'll see more conciliation on the part of Democrats and more legislation passed than in the past two years. Most likely candidates are infrastructure and immigration, but it seems that if anything, the surprise on election day will be the intensity of the blue wave rather than another Trump upset. Larry. Thanks, Michael. All right, our final speaker is Greg Strimple. He's president of GS Strategy Group. Uh, he's a Republican pollster. Go ahead, Greg. Well, Larry asked me to do the impossible, which is to speak positively about uh, Donald Trump. I'm going to go to shot. Um, so I, I, the way I look at the race, and I, and I think that, you know, gentlemen preceding me made a lot of really good points. Um, the swing part of the country remains a 50-50 country. It's obviously the swing. The most recent um, RCP battleground average has it at 49-45. Uh, one of the things that, you know, I think that uh, I would take a little umbrage with with Doug is, you know, one of the things that changed a lot at the end of the 2016 race is what happened with the percentage of can- uh, voters who said uh, that they were going to vote for the third-party candidate. And you saw a collapse over that over the last 10 days from basically, you know, 8 percentage points to 2 percentage points, which allowed, you know, Trump to – those were all kind of Trump votes – and a lot of these third-party polls right now don't test the third-party candidates, so I think that's a little bit of a challenge. Um, the, the big piece that I'm seeing most recently is I'm doing polls primarily in Senate races right now um, is that Trump you know, kind of cratered, or not kind of cratered, he clearly cratered after you know, a terrible week of a debate performance and then coming down with COVID. Uh, and then I think his his uh, response to being well was was also problematic. Um, but he's like long showed a proclivity to be able to crater and bounce back. And so the question, the thing I'm looking at right now is, will votes come back to him, or is he going to be stuck? Um, and you know, Frank Luntz um, sent him a piece around the other day that I thought was interesting that he looked at the 538 averages and compared 2016 to now, and Trump was better in almost every state today than he was uh, in 2016. Obviously, at that point, he was not the incumbent, but kind of uh, worth thinking about. Um, I look at kind of two big groups this year um, from a demographic perspective that are problematic for Trump. One is what's happening with 65-plus voters. So seniors are usually a very core uh, constituency to Republicans. Uh, They have moved dramatically in the, you know, 10 to 15 points against Trump um, from 2016 in the data I've been looking at. Um, And I think that that creates a giant uh, potential problem for Trump that he will not be able to overcome. The second piece is uh, white suburban educated women. Uh, these ladies, um, who probably most of you know, 
are kind of cannot believe the behavior uh, that Trump displays. Um, and even though they um, agree with him on many issue positions, are finding a hard time kind of, you know, stomaching the ability uh, to vote for Trump, which is kind of the third piece that I'm looking at, um, which is that um, I kind of uh, trifurcate the, the electorate in three places. You know, uh, voters who dislike Trump and his policies, voters who like Trump and his policies, and then the folks who like his policies and, but dislike his personality. Um, and that group, to me, continues to be kind of this key swing group that I'm watching to see um, if something occurs um, that allows them to snap back and side with, with Trump on his policies. And the 2018 um, elections, congressional elections, there was a 20-point net difference in the seats that Republicans held versus the, the seats that they lost among that group of voters. And so how does that group behave um, in 2020, I think, is going to be a key piece. Um, you know, I think Trump made a major strategic blunder um, by, by not doing this second debate. Um, and the reason I say that is because there's a lot of things that are working against Biden right now. Biden is as or maybe more unfavorable than Trump in many of these states, swing states. Um, I think that Biden is clearly seen uh, ideologically left of center, and this is still a center-right country. Um, and as was noted earlier, there's a lot less intensity uh, about Biden. And, and the, the thing that yeah, Trump had advantage in 2016 with Comey and those types of things is there was ability to inject news or, or, or the like for voters to make a decision about whether or not they were going to be for or against Hillary. And right now, it feels like t uh, Trump's running out of time about being able to inject any information uh, about, about uh, Biden. Um, I just want to mention a couple things about uh, what Doug mentioned earlier. I think Florida is a real problem for Trump right now. Uh, stuff I've seen, he's losing the Orlando DMA, which is one of the two swing uh, markets by you know, a fairly large percentage. And that's also, as, as folks may recall, where a large population of Puerto Ricans moved after the uh, hurricanes. Uh, and of course, Trump did not do anything to help Puerto Rico after that. Uh, and that could come back to bite him. And then I agree that Arizona looks problematic right now. And there's a large percentage in Arizona of Republicans, particularly younger Republicans, female Republicans, who are having a hard time uh, pulling the trigger for Trump, uh, and that could be a, a big problem for him. And then I just want to mention three things about uh, uh, Senate races. So there's a very good chance that both Georgia races, Senate races, will go into a runoff, and I think that's in January. So you have two seats there that post-election may not be decided. Uh, I saw some polling this week where the Louisiana Senate race may be in a similar position. Um, and so that makes three seats um, that could be decided post-November. You know, and then the last piece is, is Maine. And Maine has what's called ranked choice voting, which means that as a voter, you pick your first, second, and third choice. And then if none of the candidates uh, win a majority, then they count the second choice votes, and no one wins a majority then. They count the third choice votes. 
Um, it clearly, neither candidate right now is anywhere near 50% on the ballot um, in Maine. And so the question really becomes, and it's really hard to do through polling, is to understand where those undecided or, or voters who are voting for a third-party candidate, how they're going to vote in their ranked choice. So um, that's back to you, Larry, but kind of a lot of question marks uh, in the Senate coming up. Great. Okay. Um, let's start with Seth. Seth, um, you heard some of the, the pollsters talking about the, the various contingencies, et cetera. What can you add from your search results that could help or quantify or, or put, make sense of some of these concepts that were discussed? Yeah, I think, uh, you know, kind of just in the, in, the, in the last talk, I mentioned, you know, the Comey letter uh, came out at the end of kind of the 2016 cycle, uh, and that really hurt Hillary Clinton. You could see it so clearly in the amount of attention that it got. So I kind of just be monitoring. Again, I mentioned, I think, a little bit the Hunter Biden story that during the debate, you know, kind of there was this huge surge in interest in Hunter Biden and potential corruption around around it. And then it kind of died. The media didn't really bring it up. Uh, so, like, are we going to see anything in the last few weeks that a story that really, really captures people's attention, maybe a negative story about Biden? That would be kind of the only thing uh, I'd be worried about right now if I were Biden's campaign, because kind of the other concerns, uh, you know, there are people not voting or there being a big shy Trump contingent uh, don't seem to be borne out in the data. And there was this discussion about this try, uh, shy Trump voter, both brought up by you and brought up by Doug. Um, why is that concept such a popular view? And, you know, why do you give it almost no credence? Yeah, I think it's, it's a popular view in part because people in the media are in a, a kind of a bubble where Trump is considered such a despicable, despicable figure uh, that they assume that anyone who supports him uh, would be embarrassed to do that. And I think the reason Doug and I don't give it much credence is because there's just not much evidence that people who support Trump are very embarrassed, are particularly embarrassed about their support. Uh, so I think it, 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 it basically just shows that like uh, the two different worlds uh, that people live in and the bubbles that we live in uh, that, that make, make people kind of just imagine that Trump supporters are embarrassed of their support in a way that there just isn't evidence that they are. And Doug, um, methods of polling have changed um, over the years. It used to be a landline phone, then it included some cell phone work. Uh, you mentioned to me previously that you've been working on internet polling as a, as a different, a new approach to garnering information. Um, how would you describe the process of polling and, and using models to make predictions uh, that's been changing over time? And what what are you concerned about in terms of its efficacy as we go into areas we've never done before? Yeah, so polling has gotten more difficult over time as response rates have fallen. So, for example, not only has telephone polling gone way up in cost, the response rates have fallen through the floor. Um, Internet polling uh, uses panels of people who are pre-recruited. Uh, the panels themselves are not representative, so from the beginning you have to come up with a way of selecting a representative sample. Um, and the debates and the questions is to what extent have we successfully done that? Um, it was 
somewhat shocking that there were state polls in 2016 that didn't correct for educational differences in who responds, um, which has long been known to be a problem, but we just assumed that any competent pollster would have done that. That's largely disappeared, and that will improve the quality of the 2020 results. Um, but there are a host of other things that, uh, beyond education that are a problem. Uh, I think Seth mentioned that, you know, the overreport of who votes, uh, your typical um, survey is getting over 90% of registered voters saying they're going to vote. That's not as bad as it might sound because, uh, in fact, the registered voter turnout rate is in the 80s. Uh, but uh, it is hard to get the right electorate, and uh, the methods people do that are a big source of uh, problems. Um, um, so, Have, are there a number of longitudinal studies? What I mean by that is using the same people continuously over the entire election process. I remember in 2016, the LA Times had a longitudinal study, and there was a lot of, and they were very transparent about the votes and how they were used. And I remember there was a, a young African-American male who was a Trump voter, and the New York Times wrote an article just on that. That guy was not representative of his of his type. What what, if you could explain, like, who's using what longitudinal studies now, and what are those studies showing, and is, is, it, is it showing a break towards one direction or the other? So what, you're, what you mentioned is the USC Dornsife poll. Um, it, I think that Times article by Nate Cohn was a little unfair on them, but they were off, and they were to Trump in 2016. They were one of the few polls that actually showed a Trump popular vote majority. But the advantage of what you can do with a panel, which is what they've got, is you go back to the same people and you see real change. Uh, we do the same thing, and it makes me skeptical of the big bump that Biden has got where, uh, you know, there have been polls where Biden was up 15, 16 points, which seems a little implausible from what we know. Uh, and if you look at re-interviews of the same people, you find – uh, you do not find these massive shifts. Uh, there was a bit of a shift after the first debate um, from um, support for Biden, uh, but there is, I think as Greg mentioned, quite a bit of soft Trump support out there that he's probably going to pull back in these polls. Okay. Um, Let me Michael. jump in here just just for a right. minute for, for for everyone. This is is something that didn't come up in the discussions, which is that no one mentioned at all the vice presidential candidates. Uh, are we correct in concluding then that the vice presidential candidates will play actually zero role in deciding this election? Yes. Okay. Let's move. On. Everyone <laughs> agrees. Let's move on. <laughs> So I would say I would say almost zero, you know, almost zero that, you know, Pence, I think, helps, you know, re reassure, uh, the, you know, conservative voters uh, on his bona fides. And Harris uh, will sort of reinforces, um, uh, you know, uh, Biden's popularity with the African-American community um, and with um, women voters. So, so, Larry, I would say that this is the, the big problem or the strategic blunder. This is Greg. This is Greg, yes, yeah, sorry. That, you know, missing the, the debate is that 
you know, if in fact Biden has some of his moments that he's been able to, you know, demonstrate that he's capable of having, then all of a sudden, you know, Kamala Harris becomes uh, an issue, and she's far to the left of, you know, the national political, you know, kind of dialogue. And, and she could become an issue, but Trump has been unable to make it work. We ran a, uh, a poll question where we asked people uh, to choose between uh, Pence and Harris. So in the somewhat morbid possibility that both presidential candidates disappeared and um, and it's a much closer race. So you know, I think Republicans would do better if they could make Pence their candidate. But no one has successfully in my lifetime turned the vice presidential candidate into the deciding factor in an election. Okay. Let me let me raise one more question about an issue that, that was not raised, which is the age and health of the candidates. That 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 didn't come up in your your uh in much of the conversation. There was a little talk about dementia, but it seems as though the health of neither of these candidates has become as important an issue as it might be given their age and health status. Is that is there an, is that a problem that we need an explanation for or am I missing something? Well, Biden's Doug, why don't you take that uh, mental fitness is, is a problem for him. He, he does not do very well on that. Uh, but, it, you know, other things have taken over the discussion, and he's done well enough in the debates. But uh, I, I think that is something where it's a weakness for Biden. Although it always struck me as, as an odd argument against Biden, because it's not like uh, uh, Trump acts anything approaching normal. So if we're talking about, you know, mental fitness, it's, uh, they're, they're going toe to toe. <laughs> well, I agree Michael, with you um, as a voter, but I don't think, you know, in the data, more voters have questions about Biden's mental fitness than Trump's. Yeah. It's probably- yeah. This is Seth. I think Biden just did such, I think Biden lowered the question so much in that first debate. Uh, I think Trump's campaign probably made a mistake by showing all these clips over and over again of Biden screwing up and talking, uh, messing up his lines that I think the expectations were so low that Biden was able to kind of easily, easily surpass that and kind of lower the, the talk of that so, so much. But Seth, does, um, how many Americans actually w- hmm. was familiar with those sort of clips? Um, you'd have to see the, either the ads in the battleground states or have to be you know, watching certain uh, internet sites to see that. I mean, there's an enormous number of Americans who watched the presidential debates, um, and I would imagine very few of them would have seen those uh, sites that you're referencing. Yeah, I mean, to Doug's point, like the average American just pays so much less attention to politics than we usually think. Uh, so, yeah. I, 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 but, but I think, just for example, on Fox News, I was their kind of coverage. Even they were kind of admitting that. Uh, Biden wasn't as bad as they were expecting. Uh, so definitely the, the media coverage uh, afterwards, which I think a lot of people did follow, uh, kind of made a big point of uh, Biden kind of having it together uh, in ways that maybe they, that wouldn't have been the emphasis if, if the Trump campaign hadn't put so much, uh, so much stock in, in Biden being out of it. Fair enough. Michael, you, you spoke a little bit about the end of the filibuster. Um, 
If they do end the filibuster, do you think the Democrats are going to try to make uh, the District of Columbia a state for purposes of getting two Senate seats? So, uh, well, that that takes more than just uh, legislative action. And so, um, but I I think, I do think they will end the legislative filibuster. And I think that, um, you know, uh, they will, the Democrats, if they have both houses, if they have the White House, will act swiftly and um, make the Republicans uh, uh, rue the day that they push through the Barrett nomination. Right. And you see, oftentimes these things go round and round. Um, you know, the there was a change in the filibuster rule as it applied to uh, the appellate courts, and that quickly they changed it for the Supreme Court. Um, and if they do bring in the District of Columbia as a state, do you expect when the Republicans take over that they would expand the number of states in some way to, to benefit the Republicans? As this, and can you imagine if they pack the Supreme Court, the Republicans would then pack uh, other courts? And does this change the dynamics of what is defined to be a state or what is defined to be a judge? Do you see this just kind of going down, spiraling down? I, I think we're already forward, forward, uh, yeah, so I think, established. Yeah, so I think we, we already started the spiral down, you know, seven years ago. When Harry Reid, um, you know, uh, did what was termed as the nuclear option to sort of put through lower court judges more swiftly, uh, he didn't do it for Supreme Court nominations. The Republicans then did that, you know, after Trump was elected, and um, you know, Reid would argue that he did that because um, the Republicans were slow walking a lot of Obama's nominations, and he he couldn't get reasonable judges on the bench. But we are so. We are already on that spiral, and um, you know I, I think that it will, it will continue to spiral until there's a point of crisis that that makes everybody wake up. And Greg, you mentioned that the, the possibility that we're going to have runoffs in Georgia and Louisiana, and if we're in a situation where if the Democrats can turn one of those three or two. Uh, Senate seats to the Democratic cause. Um, should we expect just an unbelievable amount of money being poured into those races? Is it going to be a complete chaos? What, how do you expect that will play? I'm, I'm just shocked at how much money the Democrats Senate candidates are raising right now. I think that uh, the Democratic Senate candidate in, in South Carolina raised $58 million in the third quarter, which is you know a staggering amount. But, you know, a lot of this is being driven by anti-Trump, and I think it depends on whether or not Trump is the president or not. And I think if he's gone, then a lot of the momentum comes out of the, the Democratic side for wanting to, 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 you know, kind of engage and contribute and all that type of stuff. Um, but they also may be in the position where they already are at the 50-50 mark in the Senate and, you know, wanting to push one of these one way or the other could make a real difference for them. And just as a, as a question of, of Senate rules, if it is a 50-50 Senate, does the vice president, can he change a vote on to get rid of the filibuster, or is that something that requires a majority of the Senate irrespective, or the vice president does, does not get a chance to vote on something like that? I do not know. I defer to, to Mike. Doug, do you know that by chance? 
I'm the wrong guy to ask for constitutional provision. <laughs> Senator Byrd is long dead. He's not here on the show either. Um, let, let me go in, in, in a different way. Um, you know, everyone thinks, or I should say most pollsters now think that uh, Trump has, has little chance that the election won't be closed. It'll be called quite early in the night. Um, what, what things could we be missing? Because we missed a lot of things last time. What, what could we be missing that would suggest that this election could be a lot closer than we would have forecasted? Well, I think the dynamic of the race has to change. Right now, it's a referendum on Donald Trump. The, the nice thing about kind of the last four or five days is he's been relatively out of the press, which is helpful. Um, and the question is, does an opportunity present itself in the course of the last three weeks to you know, raise questions about Biden? And if that occurs, you could see a quick change. I, I don't foresee the likelihood of that at this moment, um, but certainly you know, that's a possibility. Okay. And like, and like All right. Let's. I think that Biden. Let's change tax a little bit. Usually, in in the last few minutes of the show, I go around uh, the room and ask people for um, a note of optimism. Um, historically, the show has been in the times of COVID, and when we had the medical doctors explaining the chances for mass deaths, it was a requirement to to think more optimistically about our future. Um, so let me start in reverse order. Um, Greg, what are you optimistic about? What do you think uh, we should pause to think about it in a positive way here? I think that um, James Clyburn uh, saved the Democratic Party, and so doing, he may have also saved the Republican Party. And what do you mean by that? Well, I think that by if if you were if they nominated a Bernie Sanders as a Democratic nominee, despite all of Trump's you know challenges. I think that Bernie Sanders would have been a radical choice uh, for people to make. And so I think that by getting Biden, that also allowed the Democrats a better chance of defeating Trump. And by getting rid of Trump, that helps the Republican Party uh, remake itself in a post-Trump era. Thanks for the clarification. Michael? So before I go into optimism, I'll just say that I I do have a real concern about the state of, um, uh, you know, Washington and both both parties are to blame. Both parties are to blame. And I think it is hurting, you know, the security of our country. Um, But I think we will be uh, post-election, assuming the polls are borne out, I think will we be closer to what we were in the pre-Trump era? in terms of respect for the basic institutions of our democracy, um, uh, basic honest and, and, and truth coming from government, basic you know, underscoring of the values of, of human decency. And uh, you know, I think that people who long for the pre-Trump era um, will get uh, uh, a good amount of that um, if Biden wins. Okay, Doug Rivers? Yeah, I think there are some really bad scenarios that people are focused on, but the odds are we're not going to have any of those. That is, there will be a peaceful transition of power. Um, and, uh, you know, come January, uh, 
I would hope that uh, a Democratic administration could find bipartisan support for some reforms uh, uh, when Trump is no longer president. Okay. Seth? Oh, I'll just, well, I'm, I'm a big fan of Stephen Hello? Go ahead. Yeah, I'm a big fan of Stephen Pinker, and I loved his book, Enlightenment Now, and how the world gets better and has been getting better and better for a long, for a long time, you know, more than 100 years. Uh, and I think, you know, like even during this election, there was a story that got almost no attention that nuclear fit fusion is likely to work uh, to help, you know, to mimic the way the sun produces energy in ways that may not reduce, uh, may help with global warming. Uh, so I kind of just have a, a I think we, we lose kind of the broader path that society's on uh, when we get too focused on some of the kind of elect election uh, stuff. Not that it's not really important, but. Great. Thank you. Uh, Nate, you still with us? So the last time I, I spoke with you all, um, I have become more optimistic about the election administration system. I think the local officials have been working tirelessly uh, over these last five months. Um, I'm optimistic every place except Philadelphia, I'll say, uh, but I'm hoping they'll turn it around in the next few weeks. Um, but that uh, whether it's processing of the absentee ballots or um, making sure that polling place voting is done safely, I think that we're in a much, much better shape now than we were uh, five months ago during the primaries. Very good. Andy Shapiro? I think there's reason to have to, to believe that um, courts and judges remain um, uh, at least somewhat removed from politics, as much as we all may be cynical about it. Um, not entirely, but, but somewhat. So the ruling in Pennsylvania that I adverted to uh, when I was speaking by a Trump-appointed judge invoking Kavanaugh's concurrence, um, which in turn invoked the Purcell principle, makes me think that, you know, if push comes to shove and there are fights in the courts, it's not over. Um, and, depend, and, and we shouldn't look only at what party, uh, uh, president of which party appointed a judge. Hopefully the, the, the um, judges may be able to save us if it comes to it. Just calling balls and strikes, huh? Okay. Uh, Michael Holt, what do you, uh, what do you think? Well, you want an optimistic uh, note. Yeah. Uh, my wife and I voted almost early almost two weeks ago here in Charlottesville. We had to wait an hour and a half uh, in line to get in uh, to vote. There were so many people there. Uh, one fellow uh, came out and said, I've been waiting four years for this. I, I think it was, a, it was a, an overwhelmingly uh, anti-Trump vote. But what it suggests to me is that we may... Uh, actually be able to break the 65% turnout uh, level, uh, uh, that, or, or 60% even, uh, that have made our national elections, the low turnout, such a disgrace. It, it would be nice to think uh, that. Okay. Uh, Rick Banks, do you want to make a final comment? Hearing these speakers has made me uh, believe more than I did before the call that we will have high turnout, that we'll be able to ascertain the will of the voters, and as a result of those two, the election will not be close. Okay. Um, let me uh, give a plug alert for next week. Um, the topic will be technology and COVID. 
Um, I'm going to have a special co-host, Mitch Feynman, will help join us in that call. Uh, we're going to cover a whole variety of subjects, but I'm really interested in it. We're going to cover sports and COVID. We're going to have um, the head of the Rugby Association speak. Uh, we're going to have the owner and manager of a Los Angeles soccer team, and we're going to have someone talk about a new sports betting uh, outfit. Uh, we're also going to hear, hopefully, from Gordon Ho, who's worked at the Princess Cruise Lines, uh, Elliot Cosgrove, who's the uh, head rabbi at um, Park Avenue Synagogue, will discuss how services have, religious services have changed uh, because they're virtual. So technology and COVID is coming up next week. And I think with that, uh, I'll wrap it up and conclude. Thank you very much to our speakers who've joined us today. I very much appreciate your insights and color on what's going to happen here. Um, and I'd like to thank my audience, as always, for their participation. Thanks to my co-host, Rick Banks. And with that, have a great day and enjoy it. a beautiful sunshine outside. Take care now. Good Not night. here. <laughs> Can't have everything in Virginia. It's been raining all Bye-bye. day. <laughs> Bye-bye.